just a quick review. Last week or last time, we were only able to introduce our topic, and so I can get right back into the outline. Uh, just to remind you here of what we discussed. Uh, I started out by filling in the Bonson outline a little bit on the three different kinds of Christian worldviews, and then we broke down the non-Christian religions into uh, several kinds of religions. We talked about some of the different kinds of biblical counterfeits. We're not going to go through all that right now. But we did want to hone in on one of the most common uh, biblical counterfeits, uh, religious counterfeits to biblical Christianity. Uh, the most familiar, the one we interact with on a regular basis, and one that infiltrates our churches all the time. Anybody know what that is? What do we call Sub-Christian Christianity. Sub-Christian Christianity. Um, you want to unpack that a little bit? It falls short of true Christianity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sub-Christian Christianity in the sense that it falls short of true Christianity. That's right. And most, um, most, I would say probably most professing Christians today in America, especially, um, if you if you just look at a voter registration, checking Christian, 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 most professing Christians today probably are not Christians true Christians. So they have fallen short of true Christianity. It's a sub-Christian Christianity that they have believed. We find that in evangelicalism all the time. So this is where we got into the first point of our outline, um, this most common biblical counterfeit called sub-Christian Christianity, sub-Christian evangelicalism, and we mean it falls short of genuine Christianity. It's not true Christianity. It errs on the gospel itself, or we could say errors on implications of the gospel that, uh, that that undermine the true gospel. So sometimes it's an outright perversion or denial of doctrine. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of distorting doctrinal emphases. Sometimes it has to do with the necessary implications of the gospel. In any case, that undermines the gospel. So we introduced this, and then before getting too specific, we we made we want to stop and make a biblical case. Um, really, we took the rest of the hour for this. We, we need to identify um, a biblical call to discernment. We need to say that we do have uh, not just the need, but we have um, the moral obligation before Christ uh, to be discerning. So we read through some passages of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 7, 2 Peter 2, Jude 1 John, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, a lot of scripture we went through, right? Um, and we saw that there is a biblical mandate, uh, a command from the New Testament, from the apostolic teaching, uh, to calling us to discern truth from error. We heard it from Jesus' own mouth in Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 7, that we are to identify true Christians from false professors of Christianity. We need to uh, disciple the true Christians, and we need to uh, identify and then evangelize the false Christians, and that is the way that we show genuine love toward all, toward all people, Christian, non-Christian alike, okay? So those who want to deny the biblical call to discernment, so those who want to blur the lines between the genuine and the counterfeit, they really are working to blind the church, effectively blind the church. They, to remove discernment is really to uh, turn off the church's radar system, to remove its vision, to remove its protection, to make it uh, totally vulnerable to error. 
And that has implications on people's lives. That has implications on, on uh, people getting shipwrecked in their, fit, in their faith or uh, thinking they're going to heaven, but they're going to hell all along. So without uh, discernment, the church is weakened, it's confused, it's susceptible to soul-destroying error, it's neutralized in the pursuit of its gospel mandate. And that's why, one of the reasons that Paul, uh, you can tell, look at it in Ephesians 4 there, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians to, they need to be learning, to keep on learning, and it says in Ephesians 4.12, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God uh, to a mature manhood so that we may not or no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, uh, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That, um, that imagery is powerful. Uh, winds of false doctrine. When we think about winds, it's a metaphor. Okay? This wind imagery means we can't always and usually don't see false doctrine coming. It blows in and it's invisible, uh, like the invisible wind. But we can see the effect of false doctrine, just like we can see the effect of the wind. Uh, it comes into our midst, deceitful schemes. They're carried out through, it says, human cunning, which means it's people that bring those false doctrines in with them. It's people, it's faces, it's it's relationships, it's friendships, it's family, it's sometimes even strangers. So false doctrine comes by means of false converts, false professors, false teachers, uh, the influence of false professors who are deceived by false doctrine and all that, okay? So we said last time that we need to be good Bereans and not just Bereans who are uh, looking out for doctrine, you know, words, sentences, propositions, truth claims, we need to be good brains of people, too, right? Inspecting fruit, uh, verifying profession to see if it's, if it's really valid. So, let's, um, let's pick up where we left off, or where we started last time, in identifying some of these groups of sub-Christian Christians, some of the sub-Christian evangelists, who are they? Um, Identifying sub-Christian is point number three in my outline, the identity of sub-Christian evangelicals. Talked about a number of isms, isms, okay? I put them in alphabetical order. Antinomianism, liberalism, minimalism, moralism, nominalism, politicism, or if you like, nationalism, and relativism. Did you want me to repeat those, or you guys? Because we talked about it last time, and I went just this fast last time. <laughs> Antinomianism, liberalism, minimalism, moralism, nominalism, politicism, or we call it nationalism, and relativism. Okay? Those are all, those, all those isms are really emphases that distort and or undermine the true gospel, making it a sub-Christian gospel. And therefore, it's a false gospel that damns and doesn't save. We started last time with antinomianism, and I want to come back to that and kind of work through that a bit more. I was going to move through these alphabetically, uh, but I think that tonight we're going to cover antinomianism, and then we'll talk about its opposite, which is moralism. Okay, so antinomianism on the one hand, and moralism on the other. There are two sides of the road that falls, they fall into a ditch, okay? A ditch of antinomianism and a ditch of moralism. 
So we're going to start with the antinomians. Christian antinomians. Christian antinomians. Okay. Why are you smiling, Brad? Oh, it's my favorite subject. Oh. oh, you like Christian antinomians? I just like the subject, though. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> he knows I'm trying to trap him every time I talk. <laughs> By calling it Christian antinomianism, I'm not trying to say it's Christian, okay? I'm trying to say that uh, they make use of Christian theology, Christian terminology, and they distort that terminology and that theology and put it out of balance, and they're really using Christian terms and the Bible to justify their antinomian <coughs> events, their antinomian desires. Okay, so what is antinomianism? What does the word itself mean? Let me ask that. Anti-law. Larry Lawson. Anti-law. That's, it really is literally anti-law. Anti, against, namas, is, is the word in nomianism. Uh, namas means law. So it's a lawlessness. That's the, that's the sense of it. Um, antinomians are those who, in Jude's language, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And in effect, they end up denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how they come into the church, they're part of the church, they profess Christ, they say, yea, Christ, we sing all your hymns with you, we are one of you. And yet it says here that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, they turn into an opportunity to satisfy sensual desires, and in effect, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they may profess Christ, but in their practice, they deny Christ, okay? So no matter what they say, it doesn't really matter what they say and profess. What they do is more important to what they actually believe than what they say. Okay, got that? So turn to Romans 6. Let's start there in trying to understand this. Romans chapter 6. I want to show you that this, in fact, go to Romans 3. I should tell you to go to Romans 3. This error, antinomianism, is, we, we talked about a new a newcomer to the scene, and we'll, we'll talk about him again, but I just wanted to tell you that this error is as old as the first century. Uh, Paul has been teaching the gospel uh, in his ministry. He's writing a letter to the Romans, hoping they will affirm his gospel, trusting they'll affirm his gospel, and send him on in his ministry, his mission work to Spain. Um, he's got this gospel that he puts before him, a message to guilty sinners, that guilty sinners can be justified by faith and then thus reconciled uh, to a perfectly holy God. It says back in Romans 3.21, if you look there, he said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Um, then verse 22, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, before this, he's just, he, he totally obliterated the confidence you could have in your own standing as a human being without God, without God's grace. Chapter, chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 18, he says, everybody is condemned. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned and, um, and needs his grace. So he says, but now we find that law-keeping was never the point. Law-keeping to gain right standing before God, that's never the point. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from trying to keep the law on your own power. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Look in the next chapter in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul talks about those who want to gain their right standing before God or maintain their right standing before God by the basis of works. And he says, no, works, that's not the model. You working, because if you work, you earn, right? If you work, you get a paycheck. You rightly get a paycheck. So he says in Romans 4.4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There you can see that faith is not counted as a given work. It's, it's counted as something, uh, I like what William Grinnell called it, he called it a self-emptying virtue. There is, no, there is nothing in faith. It's a channel, it's a conduit through which God's grace comes to the sinner. So this is not, uh, it's not a human work. Faith is not a, not something you generate out of yourself to gain or maintain a right standing before God. Okay? So, the one who works, wages are counted as what is due, not as a gift. But the one who doesn't work but believes, when God's grace comes to him, that is a gift. We recognize all of that in this church as the saving gospel of divine grace. And that's because it is. That's what the, the gospel is. You know how some perverted souls have heard this teaching? They hear that the righteousness of God apart from the law, they hear that, and they teach that the law is therefore unimportant. Mm -hmm. The law is not necessary. And by that, they go way too far, right? They hear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then they say that it mean, that means that there are no degrees of corruption. They say that there is no, there's no sense in making big, a big deal out of sin. Um, because all of sin, all sins are the same. All sins make us condemned, and so let's quit talking about sin. They take the phrase, justified by his grace as a gift, and they totally detach that from any demand for holiness, for pursuing holiness as the fruit of a justified life. They say no works are necessary. They say even the demand for obedience it's given by the apostles, it's given by Christ, that any demand for obedience that we give, that the preacher gives, are actually detrimental to believing. That simply resting in him who justifies the ungodly, that is the true essence of Christian living. Anything else than just resting and doing nothing, and just rejoicing, anything else is legalism, is Pharisaism, and its attempt to be justified by works. It sounds like they are making a biblical emphasis on grace, doesn't it? It sounds like they want to talk about how magnanimous God's grace is, how great it is, how wonderful, how huge it is. And that by focusing on just his grace, they'll somehow be propelled without any of their own efforts They'll be propelled forward in obedience and sanctification, and it'll result in great holiness. So what is the nature of the error then? What is the nature of the error that they 
um, the air in this view of magnifying grace and saying, let's not put any emphasis on the law. Let's not talk about the sin. Let's not make any demands on the sinner for obedience. Uh, let's start with Scott and come on to one. They're picking and choosing what they want from God, basically. So God's grace through Jesus Christ you know, saves you from your sins, but you're not, but then you, you also are, God demands holiness too. He, he wants you to strive towards holiness. holiness. Okay, all right. So if I could put it in this language, God saves you from what? Sin. 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 What's the result of sin? Death. 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 Uh, death and condemnation, which leads to not just not just physical death, but eternal death. Right? Spiritual death for all of eternity. Hell remanded to eternal punishment. Saved from that. What do you save to? Save to what? Life, goodness. Save to life, goodness. Righteousness. You, righteousness. You put it, Scott, in terms of holiness. You use the word demand for holiness. And that is a demand. There is a demand for holiness. But it's in a new, uh, someone who's regenerate, there's a desire for holiness. God commands what they actually desire. They, they cut that off from the message of the gospel. Okay? So you're saved from something, but you're saved to something. You're saved from sin and death and hell and judgment, but you're saved to a holy life, righteousness, pure, um, spotless worship of God. That's what you're saved to. And that, what we find in the Christian life, needs to be commanded. Because we sometimes forget. Their old habits come back, all right? So, Wayne. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus himself also instructs uh, multiple times, uh, Ma Matthew 7 comes to mind, um, and in fact, we also saw it in, in, uh, in Luke as well, where he makes it clear that those who follow him, that call on him as Lord, Lord, but don't do what he says, uh, you know, they are not a part of him. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's difficult to get more specific than that. And in that text, he says, depart from me, you workers of what? You Depart from me, you Antinomians. <laughs> Let me come back to you, Brett. Lila? Um, they, like, kind of like what Mr. Wayne Scott already said, they have a wrong idea of grace. They think that um, um, God already covered all my sins, so I can continue my normal lifestyle. Yeah. Okay, it, good. So they have a completely wrong understanding of what grace is. Mm -hmm. Grace, grace is just basically, it's God winking at all your sin. That's that's grace, mm -hmm. and it becomes like this grand, this benign grandfather, who no matter what you do, you know, murder somebody, and the grandfather says, no, no, he's not that bad, you know, and gives him a lollipop anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms of save from and save to, in Romans uh, six, it says. We're going to come there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we're coming there next. You're going to visit with yes. Wait, uh, Wes. I would also argue that um, it's a wrong view of, of, of man in the sense that we can't, we somehow feel that we can, um, without getting too far into six, you can't serve sin and serve God. Yeah. And you're, you're really only doing one, and you're going to have to submit to him. Okay, yeah. So that's anticipating the same thing. We'll get there. That's exactly right. That's, you guys have put your finger exactly on it. 
Um, you cannot serve two masters, okay? Whether it's gotten money or gotten sin. You're slaves, you're slaves of the one to, uh, whom you obey, okay? They just, do they ignore the doctrine of progressive sanctification then? They, what they do is they kind of pervert it. They do, they, they will claim, oh, of course we believe in sanctification, but not through law keeping, not through demands, not through, I mean, it is, it is a worse thing you can do to call people's attention to the commands of Scripture. Just let them discover the grace of God, and that is going to just stir their heart to float above all sin. That's kind of the idea. How do they measure sanctification? Chuck, don't ask such niggling questions. <laughs> no, that's, what, that's what they say. Listen, you're missing the point. And they do that. They use real condescending language. You know, you're missing the point. Really, the point is you just don't understand how glorious and magnanimous the cross of Christ is. You just don't understand how great grace is. You're just, you're stuck. You're, you're trapped in your old thinking. Law, 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 law. I'm you know, such a legalist, yeah. Yeah, you need to be delivered from that. And then, so we want to introduce you to a better way. That's, that's the kind of thing. And when you try to get too precise, yeah, they start to wiggle. They wiggle out. It's like nailing jello to the wall. You ever tried that? No. Can't do it. Can't do it. It's like, same experience if you're trying to pin one of these people down. So, um, is this a joint uh, answer? No. Uh, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Matthew 5:17 says, "Do not think I have come to to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." I love that, and you and I agree on it. Here's what they'd say. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ did. And he did fulfill. He did. He did it all. He did it all. So you don't need to do it. He did it. You're in him. He's done it. You don't need to do it. Don't worry about it. So they ignore 18. It says it's not going to pass away. No, no, it, it doesn't pass away. It's just that Christ completely did it so that you don't have to. I mean, what, what does it matter, really, if you grow from here to here in sanctification? Because even here is totally mixed with sin. So you're so bad, you're so depraved that this to this, you think that makes a difference to God? Christ's death covered all of it. So why, why, why really try to law, law, law? When Christ fulfilled all of it, they love that word fulfilled. And they'll go to that text to, and pervert to say that. I'm it's, it's, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Even repentance, I was listening to a discussion on, on repentance and the, like metanoia, I guess, is the word and, and it means a change of mind. Well, a change of mind would also result in a change of behavior, I would think, but they don't carry it that far. Yes, and yeah, you're anticipating my mind another. About what I believe. So that that comes a lot on the um, the dispensational form of this error to say that just a change of mind about who Jesus is is all that's required for you to be a Christian. So if you change your mind about who Jesus is, oh, I used to think he was just a, you know, some great guy, but now I see he's, I see he's a God. He's the son of God. 
well, you must be a Christian, and let's baptize that guy, and and he's in, he's in, and no matter no matter what, his life never changes. They say, well, um, he just hasn't made Jesus his Lord yet. He made him his Savior, metanoia. He changed his mind about who Jesus is. <laughs> But he just hasn't made Jesus his Lord. He'll come to that, maybe. But if he doesn't, he's still going to heaven. Second Corinthians five seventeen talks about a new creation. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a change. Yeah. It, it, yeah. The scriptures talk about a change. In exactly. 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 Um, I, I see all the hands popping up, and I, if we don't, uh, so here's what I'm going to do. More time on hands. No more hands. But I see Ron, um, and I saw one come over here. Oh, Lord, and I see Paulette. So let's go, Ron, Paulette, and Lord. How did they get around uh, Romans 6? <laughs> uh, we're going to come to that. confess and repent because if nothing is you know if sin doesn't matter and the law doesn't matter what are we supposed to confess or well, repent? No, so they so they'll say that for initial you know coming into salvation but beyond that do not talk about you know their sinfulness and everything else because just really it's we're all sinners we're, and we're all more sinful than you think we're so simple, it's just uber simple, and everybody's uber simple. And what's the difference between you and me anyway? In fact, my little white lie and that person's adultery is on the same level before God. Really? Is it really your white lie and that person's adultery are of the same consequence? Is that how God sees it? Anything's a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin? Now, for condemning a person, absolutely. Each person is condemned, no matter if they break the if they break the windshield here, 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 it's gonna shatter the entire windshield, right? Humpty Dumpty is not getting put back together again. Once you sin, eternal condemnation. But there is a difference in consequence in, in different kinds of sins, right? So to say that um, uh, I don't know. I don't want to make this comparison too too large, but that little old lady, the Mormon grandmother or whatever, you know, so sweet and just trying to do all the things everybody told her, and she's just she mowed her lawn and everything else, and, and she's going to be at the same level as Adolf Hitler. Really? Does God's justice not know degrees of? I think it does. Uh, yes, Lord. Well, you're probably tired of hearing, well, what would they say about this? But I know, I know they would say that they love Jesus. So then what do they do with all the many, many verses that say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? What would they say to that? No, they would tur turn that into an indicative. So rather than an imperative, if you love me, you will and you should keep my commandments. They say, if you love me, you will. It'll happen. You'll keep my commandments. So, and what they say is that by, by maximizing your understanding of your terrible, wretched sinfulness, which I don't necessarily agree with them or disagree with them saying they need to emphasize our depravity. That's true. But by emphasizing our depravity, in fact, you know, by living in it, you know, they say, well, I've come to understand the grace of God even more. Uh, that's mm -hmm. The grace may abound theory. That grace may abound. 
But it's continuous in the grace of God. Okay, so you guys are anticipating it. Let's go to Romans 6. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to keep you in such tension. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then, Paul says. I mean, these are. this is Paul defending his gospel against people who are making the same charge against him. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is exactly what somebody, some of these people have embraced. By no means. Who may? May it never be. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Joe, that's your point. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man's in Christ is a new creation, what do new creations do? They walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin, that is the sin nature, the old sin thing, our old self, might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. <coughs> So baptism into Christ means the crucifixion of self. It means the, an end to the ruling power of this thing that Paul calls the body of sin. It's another way of describing the old man, um, sin nature, the old self that's been crucified with Christ. So the one who has died has been set free from sin, first from sin's penalty in justification, then from sin's power in sanctification, and then finally, from sin's total presence and glorification. Look at verse 12. This, because this has implications for how we live. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members, that is your body parts, and this includes your members, includes your mind, includes your eyes, includes things you don't, your imaginations. It includes things that are a part of you, things you have control over, okay? Don't let any of that, don't present those um, members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Same statement. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one, of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? <clears throat> Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Okay? So let's stop. Well, let me just say, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. So if you're a true Christian, you're a slave of righteousness. If you're a true Christian, you're no longer a slave of sin. You are able to obey what's given to you from the Word. You're able to obey. And if you are continuing in disobedience, what does that mean? Yeah, that means you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to death. But if you're walking in increasing levels of obedience and growing, you're a slave of righteousness means you've been converted, means you're a new creation. So, there are, um, as I said, the sub-Christian groups that emerge from time to time, and they fly the banner of Christianity, they profess Christ, 
They use the Bible. They teach Christian doctrine, some Christian doctrine. Um, but they practice a form uh, of Christianity, a Christian religion, that is not Christianity. It's not true Christianity. They, 2 Timothy 3, 5, they hold to a form of godliness. Church attendance, using Jesus' language, posting, you know, Jesus stuff on Facebook. They got, you know, devotionals. They got to do the whole thing. They do the whole thing. They got a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. What's the power for? Power to what? Power to live a holy life. Power to live a holy life. That is a power that you cannot mimic. That's a power you cannot find in any human being to obey what Christ says. So they deny the power of the gospel to actually sanctify the sinner. And if the gospel can't sanctify the sinner and has no power to sanctify the sinner, we should be asking the question, does the gospel have the power to actually save the sinner from eternal hell, too, right? If it can't do the less... How's it going to do the greater? So there are two, I'm going to give just two uh, camps of this error. On the one hand, on the Arminian dispensational side of the fence, these are the folks who teach that you can accept Jesus as your Savior um, and go to heaven when you die, but choose not to accept him as your Lord and still go to heaven when you die. Okay? This is the metanoia. I've changed my mind about who Jesus is and I'm good to go, and my life never needs to change. Okay? Jesus is my Savior. I just haven't made him my Lord yet. Like, that is so arrogant. <laughs> who are you? You don't make Christ your Lord. You don't make him anything. He is who he is. You either, you either embrace him for who he is, or you reject him for who he is. You don't bifurcate Christ and separate. I like the Jesus that's in Savior part. This Lord thing over here. I'm going to keep him over on a shelf, sitting over there next to Bill Bailey. <laughs> so, this is, this is one side of the error. And these are the once saved, always saved folks. The, the ones who love to talk about grace and free will. That God would never violate your free will. Okay? They create categories. Um, for people whose lives deny the grace of God, deny the power of God to, to save. Um, because, after all, God would never violate your free will. So you can continue on the sinful exercise of your free will. As long as you change your mind about Jesus, you're in. You're going to heaven. I'd say that the pursuit of sin is the will in bondage, not a free will. It's not evidence that the will has been set free at all. So some of the Arminian dispensational theologians and pastors, they've even created a category for professing Christians who continue in sin. They call them, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, they call them carnal Christians. Mm -hmm. You ever heard that? Mm -hmm. they, they've created a whole different category. It's a, it's a total bad interpretation of 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. Um, the carnality Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3 is actually not being saved. <laughs> They're not saved. There's only two categories there, Christians who are spiritual and non-Christians who are carnal. And he's saying you're acting like carnal people, which is basically to accuse them of not being Christians. But these people think that this category of carnal Christian helps explain how little Johnny, who professed Christ and got baptized and became the award-winning star of the Warner program, model student in the youth group, and all the rest, how that kid can go off to college and live in total denial of his profession. 
They want to believe that as long as he still professes Jesus, he's going to go to heaven no matter how he lives. And I'll just tell you that um, if you have not read The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur, you need to get that book and read it. Because that is dealing with this very error on the dispensational side of the camp, mostly. Uh, it's the same error on the Calvinistic, Reformed, Covenantal side of the camp, just in different theological robes. But on the dispensational side, the Arminian side, this is the error that he's dealing with in the Gospel According to Jesus. And it is a watershed book. So I, I just tell you again, if you have not read that, let me know if I can get you a copy. I'll get you one for free. And um, put it in your hands, and you just need to grow in discernment about that. It's, it's, it's really important, not just for you and your own thinking, but for people you love, people you know, okay? People have been, and my heart goes out to people because they, they think they're following what their teachers and their theologians and pastors are telling them. They're trying to follow that as best as they can. They, they're t they're, they've been told, ever since a kid says, yes, I believe in Jesus, don't ever teach him to question that profession of faith. Do not ever teach him to question that, because that's questioning Christ. But the Bible always tells us to examine ourselves and see what we're in the faith. So they've just been misled. A lot of people have been misled that way. On the other side of the theological aisle, the Calvinistic camp, the covenantal camp, it's the same error, just comes, comes out wearing different robes. Um, there are those who are just as committed to protecting their own, their own desire to continue in sin, but they just find different ways to twist scripture and justify uh, their desire to sin. Most, I, I mentioned this last time, the most modern example of this teaching comes from Tulian Chavidjan. And, um, and he, interestingly, came out of the dispensational side, came into the covenantal side, became a Presbyterian, and um, same error though. Same error that he uh, propounded. I think he, I think he probably grew up and under the spotlight and having to, you know, watch all his behavior and just became enough of this. But I still want to maintain heaven. You know, I don't want to give that up. So he came up with a different way. He basically taught, as I said, we 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 need to stop commanding Christian obedience. That's just browbeating legalism, and we need to instead um, just accept the fact that we've all sinned that we've all sinned terribly, we're worse than we know, and just to really take that seriously and just let people simply rest in their justification. So, um, we should only encourage sanctification by telling people what Jesus has already done for them in justification, and just let gratitude uh, be stirred in their hearts and lead them lead them onward. One, one author, I mentioned her last week, I don't think I named her, but Jen Wilkin, writing over the Gospel Coalition website, she coined a very apt phrase, I think, to describe Chavidian's approach. She called it celebratory failureism. And her article is, a pro <laughs> this is what, they, he celebrates failure, he celebrates sin, and said, yes, yeah, it's, it's the whole error, let, let, uh, let us continue in sin, that grace may abound, that grace may be magnified. Let's talk more and more about our sin, that grace can be even greater. So listen to him, teach sometime. Her article is appropriately titled, appropriately titled, Failure is Not a Virtue. Failure is Not a Virtue, great article. Is that dude still like leading a ministry? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Um, this is later on in my notes, but I'm just gonna tell you now that he, um, 
years ago, I was working at Grace U, and we were seeing him emerge, and his teaching get more and more popular. Uh, there were other people who were, you know, latching onto the teaching. Elise Fitzpatrick uh, wrote a book called Give Them Grace. You know, it's for parenting. Let don't browbeat your kids with moral demands, but give them grace. And so she be, took this in, uh, hook, line, and sinker. And um, it was sad to see, um, but he, he became more and more prominent. And I remember talking to people at Grace to you and saying, that guy has hidden sin in his life. That's why he loves this hyper-grace, it's, it's called the hyper-grace movement. He loves this hyper-grace teaching because he's got sin and he's bugged and he wants to find a theological justification for why he does what he does. It was right around the time, I think, uh, just before I left Gracie or just after, that uh, some friends wrote some really good articles on Gracie's website dealing with the hypergrace doctrine. And um, Tulian started to basically, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was definitely connected to Gracie's articles, but he, he was starting to fall apart in other places. The wheels were coming off everywhere. You know, it was a departure from the Gospel Coalition, it was a departure from here, 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 here. It came revealed that he was carrying on um, adultery. You know, he, was, he was grooming women in his congregation to, uh, to, to be amenable to his advances. He'd spot him. He was like a, he was a predator. He was a predator. Eyes, just like 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter 2 or Jude talks about eyes full of adultery. There's a guy had a prism of adultery that he was looking through. He was looking for victims. So he was doing this. His wife ended up committing adultery, and that was exposed first, and he threw her under the bus. He got counseling, and everybody counseled him and said, yeah, she's, you know, she basically all, her, all the counselors were throwing her under the bus. And then she divorced him. He blamed her. Then his stuff was revealed. And then he said, well, I was never really qualified for ministry anyway. And isn't that the point, that nobody's qualified? And so there's, um, in fact, let me find it in my notes here. One of, uh, one of Tullian's counselors and defenders named Paul Zoll um, flipped all of this on its head to make this a virtue rather than um, something to be ashamed of. Here's this quote from Paul's all defending Tullian Chavidjan because Tullian Chavidjan's back in ministry. I would go so far to say that Tullian's personal experience, as bad as you want to make it out, what is that supposed to mean? Has qualified him and qualified him brilliantly to preach the gospel. So he's now more qualified because he knows what it's like to fail and to fail publicly. He knows the deep things of Satan. He knows the deep things of Satan. Exactly. He knows how to ignore Titus. <laughs> he says, look, none of you are qualified. Don't you be moralistic. Don't you, don't you parade your Pharisaism and say you're qualified because nobody's qualified. I'm not qualified. Nobody's qualified. I just got caught. You didn't. So he just sees everybody through a sinful lens and condemns everybody. Listen, you have to know um, a brilliantly qualified you know that um, that guy from Colorado Springs, the, you know the, the guy who was doing methamphetamine and male prostitutes and all that stuff. Haggard. Ted Haggard, he's back in ministry too. Yeah. He's pastoring a church. Um, per, uh, Perry Noble, another rank uh, heretic, he's back in ministry. These guys get back in ministry. Mark Driscoll, 
boom, crash and burn. Now he's back in ministry in Arizona. These things, they use them now to say, look, I'm more qualified because I've been down there with you. I know you don't need some stained glass preacher up there who's holier than thou, commanding you and not having any sympathy or grace. I will have grace. I just think, like, really? Does that disqualify Jesus from ministry? Who's never sinned? And yet had full compassion. This is, um, it's, it's obviously a blatant error. We all understand that. But you need to know that many, many pulpits in our community are teaching this stuff. And the young people love it. Absolutely. Because something that young people are going through, especially ones that have been raised in church, they're struggling with sin. They're struggling with their conscience. They're bothered. And they love to find some authority figure, like a pastor, telling them, you don't need to worry about any of that. Don't worry about any of that. Isn't that a great message to hear? You can sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend. You can smoke some pot or you can do whatever. You can party and everything else. And just we just need to know that we're more sinful than we even know. And this is what makes God's grace so wonderful and so great. So let's all, you know, throw another roof on a poor person's house and hand out some more meals because this is what grace causes us to do. Just be gracious. It's a false gospel. And it's condemning and damning many. And many who are in the younger population, we just need to understand that. They, they will speak the same language, but it's a different religion. Okay? So, looking at the time, I'm going to speed up and uh, ask a couple uh, questions here. I want, to, I want to ask you a couple questions to interact with this before we get on to the other side of the ditch, the other ditch that you can fall into called moralism, which they're reacting against, um, the Anonomians are. But I want to borrow a couple of questions by some excellent, Rick Phillips is a Presbyterian pastor who has done some excellent interaction with the whole Tulian Tavidian uh, hypergrace movement. So if you look up Rick Phillips and you know, hypergrace or something like that, you'll find his articles. Brilliant, brilliant, incisive, biblical, excellent interactions. I'm going to borrow a couple questions that he asked. Um, here's his question. Here's a question for you. Is it possible or even expected for Christians to lead increasingly holy lives by the power of God's grace in Christ receive their faith? Yes. Yes. Is that possible? Yes. Is it expected? Yes. yes. Okay. Let me ask you, do, do you expect it? Yes. yes. Of people who call themselves Christians yes. to you? Do you expect that their life should, should be growing in holiness? Yes. Good. Phillips asked this question. Does the Bible, and thus should we, issue commands to obedience and personal godliness that are intended for the believer himself or herself to do in the power of grace through faith in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. The Bible, the Bible does issue commands to obedience and expects us to issue commands to obedience, right? Biblical commands. Great commandment. The Great Commission, right? Yeah. The Great Commandment. Oh, the Great Commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Yeah, but time. the Great Commission too, because we're supposed oh. to teach Him and everything. And Titus 1.9 is exactly on point here, right? That elders are expected to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, excellent. It seems like it should be a, a closed case at this point, right? 
So if you answered both Rick Phillips's questions with a yes, and you should have, here's some related questions. What do you say to people who profess to be Christians, but there's virtually no difference between them and non-Christians? In lifestyle, in behavior, the kind of things they do for fun, all the rest. The way they, the, what they pursue, their ambitions. What do you say to those people who profess Christ, but don't live like Christians? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Okay, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. That's right. So you start there. Well, point specifically, you can tell them that, but point specifically to Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit. spirit. These these are very specific. Good, good. We're going to come back to that, too. Excellent. Excellent. Maggie. And um, 1 John 2, um, 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Yes, so that's helping us to diagnose. The person who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments doesn't is... Doesn't walk like he walks. Yeah, doesn't walk like he walks, well, is a liar. If that, that person is a liar. Now, is that how we lead the conversation? You liar. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's diagnosing it. You know, we as, we as uh, elders and, and deacons up there at uh, Moses' church and... Not the Moses, no, yeah. <laughs> Pastor Moses, uh, over in uh, over in Brush, Colorado. Moses. Some of you guys. Were and we were talking about diagnosing, you know, what the issue is, putting it in biblical categories, talking about what we should do about it in faithfulness to Scripture. But then there's the shepherding approach to people. So to understand that. What, like what Maggie said, that person's a liar. So what do you do with that information? Do you say, you liar? You know, you don't, you don't start there, but you try to help that person see that they are self-deceived. They're, they're lying to themselves and to everybody else. And so there's a gracious, winsome way to help people understand that error, okay? Here's another question. Is it legitimate for us to question someone's Christian profession? Is it, yes. is it legitimate to question their salvation if he or she is more regular at bars and sporting events than church? Yes. Yeah. If he or she is more devoted to career or education than Christ and Christian ministry? Yes. If he or she is living with someone to whom they're not married? Um, yeah. Or leaving someone to whom they are married? Yes. Yes. Okay, so final question. What's the... The fundamental point of gospel inconsistency in this category of Christian antinomianism. What's the fundamental issue? Lordship. Lordship. Excellent. Um, you could say there's another answer, but that's dead on. Like non-changed heart. Yeah, um, that's probably a fundamental reason, but I'm just talking about like a fundamental issue. Selfishness. Yeah, the cha- no changed heart. They don't want to follow his lordship. What else? They love the world. I love the world. So no holiness. So I'd say issues of holiness, issues of lordship, that's what's at stake here. They will, they will articulate a gospel that you would probably say, yeah, I can accept that as a gospel. It's what they do afterwards. It's the emphases. It's the, it's the ism in their sub-Christian Christianity. It's the ism that takes them away from the true gospel that they say they believe and undermines it and, and uh, actually distorts it into something that's a um, you know, perversion, a mongrel uh, copy. Uh, one, just one, just Brett, go ahead. Yeah, just that, um, you know, what Scott said is kind of the, the point. In some ways, it, it, 
because what happens is people don't even mean to, but they don't understand that Christianity is not just another religion. It's not something you signed up for. So if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. A miracle happened to him that dragged him out of his sin and saved him, and it was from God. It's not him that did it. He didn't make a decision to be that. And so, you know, if you do think in your back of your mind that you made this decision or something, or you, you know, you chose the right religion or whatever it is, then you, then you are vulnerable to thinking, how could I ever live, you know, I could maybe get a little bit better here or there. But the thing is, when you're in Christ, you are a new creation, your desires are different. Totally you, different. you are changed from within. And that's why, that's why we say that, you know, no one, no one comes to Christ who doesn't want to come, Amen. in a sense. And yet everybody who comes to Christ at one point didn't want to come. Right. And that's how they were born. They were born not wanting to come. They didn't want to come. And then Christ did something called regeneration. So the Spirit, God sent the Spirit to regenerate them. And all of a sudden, now I want to. Yeah. I want to turn from sin. And I want to turn from sin forever. And I want to follow Christ and believe in Him and trust Him forever. forever. And I want to... Be with him forever. Yeah, and it's so totally that's, different. It's exactly right. It's a totally religious. It's a totally different. It's a totally different thing. It's a miracle of God. Yeah. That's right. So that keep that comment in mind as we go into this next error, because the next error is the polar opposite. So you've got Christian antinomianism, and that is very popular today. It's always going to be popular. Here's the opposite error of antinomianism. It's moralism. Moralism. <laughs> Christian moralism. Moralism is the polar opposite of antinomianism. It is the error that we possess or we gain, we possess, we maintain a good standing before God on the basis of our moral behavior. Okay? The basis of your moral behavior. Moralism is finding good in ourselves and then finding good in ourselves that makes us acceptable before a holy God. It's a denial, on the one hand, of the depravity of the sinful human condition, or on the other hand, it's a denial of the infinite holiness of God, or perhaps it's both things. It really is both things. It's a denial of our sinfulness, and it's a denial, denial of God's holiness. Moralism both promotes man and demotes God. Okay? So it makes those two errors. So let me ask you a question here. Which do you think is the most prominent error in the 21st century in America, moralism or antinomianism, and why? Antinomianism. Antinomianism. Because people want to sin, they want to keep going as many sins are being made legal as many sins as they're legally allowed to do, they're going to want to do it. Okay. And moralism is saying, no, you can't do that because you have to be perfect to get to heaven. Well, Anton, you know, the other one says that you don't, that, oh, you can do all that. Jesus accepts you anyway. Yeah, okay. So it just kind of fits into the cultural milieu, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Lee? Looking at audiences uh, in the Christian church, I think moralism is the issue more. Because we have, from a young age, we're taught to uh, a variety of sin management. Just get this thing working in a certain way and, and look this certain way. And we heard testimonies this morning 
that that's exactly what was going on. I looked good on the outside and I was rotten on the inside, quoting Ron Matthews. <laughs> if the shoe fits, wear it. I have <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So you would say that more pervasive in the churches is, is what you said. More pervasive in the churches is this tendency toward moralism. And the, reason maybe, on the outside. and the reason maybe that's important is because that's where the cleaning has to start. Judgment has to begin with the house of God. It has to, because there's a lot of work that has to be done within the church before the church can be the witness that needs to be to, to really make a statement in the world. That's good. Uh, very insightful comment. Yes. Yeah, uh, leave it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is going to sound odd, but it kind of seems to me like people take like a crossbreed of the two where um, they they define moralism the way they want to by you know pretty much saying that they can meet God's standards without actually doing it the way the Bible says to um, and then they um, sorry I'm getting lost I'm losing my train of thought I've got your train of thought. Thank you. I think it's really, really good. That's a good comment. So if I could finish the thought for you, you tell me if this is what you're saying. Uh -huh. That it is a blend because on the one hand, they grow up with a certain set of do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. And they kind of carve out for them a moralistic way of living, uh, acceptable on the outside to the people that they go to church with. Mm -hmm. But their hearts are not contained by those moralistic do or don'ts, and they they spill out here and here and here, and so they really are antinomians at heart. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a moralistic lawlessness. They do what they want, and we push you on that. There's gonna be another good author with a great term: moralistic lawlessness. That's like a good term. It's actually heard it here first. I think it allows churches to be more like ecumenical too. Say, oh, well, that church at least they're doing good things, or they're like the church that I used to go to is now like at the beginning of their service they're praying for churches in their area, like the Catholic churches, and they're saying we pray that they're praying for not for them to change their beliefs to repent to repent. They're praying that they're like. Their mission stuff is successful. That they'll be successful in in their according to their religious tradition. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I heard Jack Hayford at NRB just a few years ago. Jack Hayford is a I don't know if you've heard of him, a charismatic preacher. Was very popular on the radio. Um, and he said he used to drive by the Catholic Church and have these kind of judgmental thoughts about how they don't have the gospel and stuff. And he said that the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, are you going to say that that church where all these dear people go, that I have, that I have died for, and they practice that sacrifice every week on the altar, and you're going to say that's a wrong church? The Holy Spirit told him that. Really? He said that in front of the National Religious Broadcasters while receiving a Broadcasting Excellence Award. I was there to hear it. Absolutely shocking. And when I looked around, everybody was just sitting there going like this. Uh, you know, probably 5,000 people in the room. And I just thought to myself, 
Where's evangelicalism going? That you can sit there and nod to that. Is the Protestant Reformation now all of a sudden no longer important? That's just terrifying. Paulette? It seems like all of these isms make salvation only about getting to heaven. And I don't remember if it was you or Josh that said a couple weeks ago that our salvation isn't just about going to heaven, it's about glorifying God mm-hmm. on this earth and in the afterlife. It's about serving God. So if our only reason for our salvation is to get to heaven, it's probably not true salvation. Yeah. That's, that's a good comment. And that's what people want. They just, they just want God to be... The, the pellet giver, you know, like the rat in the cage that just hits the, the bar and gets the pellets. The they just want genie. the pellet to come out. And they just, yeah, the genie, you know, rub the, rub the lamp and three wishes. That's what they want out of God. Mm-hmm. Great, you know, eternity set. And by the way, can I have my best life now? So, um, Ren. Yeah, um, in my interaction with, you know, especially young people, I see the most moral people are Mormons Catholics, very moral. But at least in them, there's a fear of God. But what concerns me most is the other side, the evangelicals, the antinomists. Antinomians, yeah. That is pervasive, like you said, into this culture, especially young culture, youth culture. And that's promoted by a lot of all these movements. You know, but, uh, in that, I feel like there's no fear of God. Yeah. At least in the moralist field, there is a fear of God, you know. Yeah. But on the other side, there's there's the absence of holiness and the fear of God. So. Yeah. But how do you relate to these two, you know, yeah. mindsets? That's right. my big question. Yeah. So it's a great question. I'm hoping we have time to get to it. So we'll we'll race through. But just to just to kind of tie this together. What Lee said is what you see in churches a lot is this moralism. You do see it. You also see the antinomianism. And I'd say that the antinomianism is probably popularly a a more widespread error, but quietly in churches, probably you could say moralism is more pervasive. What explains that? Well, young people love their sin. They like people who tell them that they're okay to sin. They eventually go, you know, spend a lot of time doing that, and then they finally get married and they go to church, and what do they do? They have children. What does parenting do? It makes you a whole lot more conservative, doesn't it? You don't promote antinomian doctrines to your children. <laughs> you all of a sudden become moralists, and uh, you're trying to teach them a whole different way, and so you clamp down. Parenting makes people a whole lot more conservative. They vote more conservatively, they parent more conservatively, they teach more conservatively than church. But that just makes, they just breed more of themselves. They breed, when you when you clamp down moralism, do's and don'ts and everything, then they grow up, and as soon as the restraint is off, they're out repeating the same cycle. That's what's going on. Okay, so both of these things, insightfully, Leah, you pointed out, they mix together. We are both things. We need to watch out for both errors. I want to commend to you an article, if you haven't seen it, it's by Albert Moeller. And um, it's posted on his website earlier this month, and it's called Moralism is Not the Gospel, and then in parentheses, but many Christians think it is. Moralism is not the gospel, but many Christians think it is. 
I'd like you to just go online sometime this week and read that article, okay? Allow me, just indulge me here to read an extended uh, excerpt from that article. He does such a good job, and I think it's really worth your time. Here's what uh, just part of that article says. Writing about his own, this is Mueller speaking, Mueller writing here, quote, writing about his own childhood in rural Georgia, the novelist Farrell Sams described the deeply ingrained tradition of being raised right, he puts that in quotes, raised right. As he explained, a child who is raised right pleases his parents and other adults by adhering to moral conventions and social etiquette. A young person who is raised right emerges as an adult who obeys the laws, respects his neighbors, gives at least lip service to religious expectations, and stays away from scandal. The point is clear. This is what parents expect, the culture affirms, and many churches celebrate. But our communities are filled with people who have been raised right, but are headed for hell. The seduction of moralism is the essence of its, of its power. We are so easily seduced into believing that we actually can gain all the approval we need by our behavior. Of course, in order to participate in this seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes. That's kind of back to Leah's point. Innumerable loopholes to get out of your little web of moral behavior, acceptable moral behavior. Back to Mueller. Most Mueller, uh, most Mullers. <laughs> Scrap that. Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely beyond scandal. That is considered sufficient. Moralists can be categorized as both liberal and conservative. In each case, a specific set of moral concerns frames the moral expectation. As a generalization, it is often true that liberals focus on a set of moral expectations related to social ethics, while conservatives tend to focus on personal ethics. The essence of moralism is apparent in both, the belief that we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. The theological temptation of moralism is one many Christians and churches find it difficult to resist. The danger is that the church will communicate by both direct and indirect means that what God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In so doing, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to a fallen world." End quote. That sentence I just read, that by communicating a, a gospel of moral improvement, the church, quote, subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to a fallen world. Do you think that statement's too strong? I don't think it is. It's, I think it's spot on. And I think if you go over to Galatians chapter 1, I'll show you. And I think it's maybe, if anything, it errs in not being strong enough. Galatians chapter 1, and look at verse 6 and following. Um, Paul told the Galatians, this is a church that he evangelized, and these are people that he knew, and they are succumbing to a gospel of moral improvement 
and he confronts it at the very beginning of the letter. He doesn't even actually name the exact error, but he says this, confronting it, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you receive, let him be accursed. Accursed is, uh, is, is also translated anathema in some translations. That's the Greek word. It's actually anathema. And it means let him be damned to hell. That's a very, very strong way of stating that. If anything, so like I said, if anything, Dr. Bullock's language is a little bit too weak for what's a soul-damning lie. Anybody, can anybody sum up for us the Galatian error? What was that? Judaizers. Judaizers? Okay, so what was those? Making them moralists. They were saying, you have to follow the Mosaic law as well as follow Christ. Excellent, excellent. So, Natalie said the Judaizers were coming into the Galatian church and they were professing Christians, maybe former Pharisees, some of them, and um, they were coming into the Christian church and they were saying, hey, this, this Christ thing, we totally, Christ, we're Christ all the way, Messiah, we believe in Christianity. And they said, but now that you've kind of come into Christ, you need to be circumcised, and you need to follow the law, and you need to follow the same thing that Rod was saying. He was part of a Galatian church, really a, a Judaizing kind of a, a group. And Seventh-day Adventists fall into that as well. Um, that they believe that law-keeping and mosaic law-keeping is the way that you maintain your and prove your you know, loyalty to Christ. So they're saying the same thing here in, in to the Galatians. Um, look at chapter 3, verse 1. So move through this pretty quickly here. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was, was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he's saying, is that not enough for your salvation? He's crucified Christ? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? <laughs> Obviously, if they're Christians, they answer the latter. If they're not Christians, they answer the former. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he supply, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted him as righteousness. So, you go to the language of chapter 4. Galatians had heard the gospel, they professed faith in Christ, but they were turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, and that was turning them into slaves. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Um, they're turning back. So what's the problem with starting with Christ, as the Galatians did, and then maintaining one standing with Christ so that you're raised right, um, in the Christian faith, raised up to maturity to obey the law of Moses, to, you know, starting with circumcision and all the rest, Sabbath observance, feasts, all that. What's wrong with that? Look at Galatians 3.10. Galatians 3.10 says, 
For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you want to gain or maintain your standing with God by works of the law, well, let's, let's hope that you're absolutely flawless. Well, like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and Jesus said, how do you read the law? All these things I've kept from my youth. Really? Really? Moralists are blind to their own baldness. They're blind to their own, they think they're fine. They think they're good. You cannot gain or maintain approval by law-keeping. I've already broken the law. It's too late. Verse 11 says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The law just reveals our sin, reveals God's holy character, it reveals our sin and contrasts that, it reveals our need for the Savior. It has no power on its own to save us. So what we really need is what it says in Galatians 4, 4. We need a new standing with God that's given to us by God, okay? When the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, here it is, adoption as sons. Because you're sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. You have a son, you're an heir, heir through God. So what's necessary? is an entirely new standing with God. What Brett called, you need a miracle done to you. You need a miracle done, resulting in a new relationship with God. What Joe said, you need a new, you need to be a new creation in Christ. Reforming the old self is not gonna work because you've already blown it. <laughs> you've blown it. The law is broken and you are under condemnation and wrath. You need, you were an enemy, but by God's grace, you're no longer an enemy, now you're a friend. You're no longer a slave of sin, but you're set free. Become a slave of righteousness. You're no longer strangers, now you're family. You're adopted sons and daughters. And being in the family means you're of the same nature. It means, it means you're eternally his. You eternally belong to him. So that only happens as a gift of God's grace. And then the Christian life, look at Galatians 5. The Christian life, is lived no longer in the flesh, but by the same power that animates all the family of God, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that brought you into the family of God and adopted you, the power of the Spirit, is the same power that is going to sanctify you. It's the power of the Spirit. I say, verse uh, Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, and what does it say? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Does that mean being obedient to Christ is not important? No. It just means that the power that's animating you is the spirit's power. What God commands you to do, he gives you the power, the will, the ability to do. Okay? So, in a cultural context that favors maybe that antinomian kind of error, you know, American individualism, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, however I just define happiness, um, my own radical uh, bent toward liberty to where I can even define my own gender, 
I can make up new genders. I can do whatever I want to. In a context like that that favors the antinomian kind of error, why do you think that some people or anybody finds moralism attractive? What makes moralism so attractive to the unregenerate? I see that hand. Let's start with Gary. Self-righteousness. Right. Self-righteousness. I mean, that's... I'm working at my own righteousness. Okay. And I know, like when I think of moralism, the people I know that are moral or really promote that, and Red said the Catholic Church and Mormons, I agree they're very outwardly moral. But as you look at things, it's all dependent, or they have something to boast in. Okay. As a follow, I see your hands, I'm going to come back to you, but as a follow-up to your question, i got another question here. Does moralism actually work? No. No. We, we all testify to these really moral Mormons, really moral Catholics, right? Gives you the false sense Still going of to hell. Still going to hell. But does it work? Does it clean them up? No. Is this an answer to that question? Okay, go ahead. Outwardly. You quoted earlier, I believe you were in Galatians when you said, can the, the flesh complete, no, this is Corinthians, can the flesh complete what the spirit has started? And that's exactly what moralism is. Yeah, it was Galatians, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Can, can the flesh complete what the spirit started? No. Right? It has no power. Two totally different modes of operation. Um, other answers to this question? Does, does moralism work? Uh, let's start with Larry, Scott, no. Josh. No. Okay. <laughs> there's man's standard and there's God's standard, and they're different. Okay. All right. So it may, may look like really reformed on the outside, but on the inside, we're no, we're no, we're no one with God can see, full of dead man's bones, how Jesus described it. Uh, Josh. It, it works better for like a society. Uh, you're going to have a, I mean, that's why the laws all throughout history, the existence of laws, it works better. You say it works better for society. Yeah, for society, but it doesn't, it doesn't do what, what they think it's going to do. Uh, so it doesn't ultimately work. Okay. You sure it works better for society? I second that. I, 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 <laughs> now I'm really Uh, a nation of Mormons <laughs> than a nation of Millennials. The beginning of the line of that <laughs> Okay, I've lost this side over here. <laughs> well, it depends on what your moral standard is because I wouldn't want to live under Sharia. Oh, yeah. I mean, Sharia yeah. is very moral. Sorry. I mean, it's a standard, it's a rigid moral Sharia. ethic, but. Nobody does live under that. Yeah. Not for the women, anyway. And, and no, we, not the women, yeah. And honestly, okay, listen, Christy, so let's, let's go back to that. It's, it's, it's uh, interesting that, uh, that two men, Josh and Wes, are very content to live under Mormon moralism. While the women in the room say, you know what, time out. I'm not sure that Mormonism and being one of multiple wives of some Brigham Young descendant is really my lot in life. You know that the, some of the highest of antidepressant usage in the country yeah. is in Utah? It's just women just depressed, absolutely depressed. You know what their future is? 
pregnant. Eternal pregnancy. Wouldn't you like that? Get <laughs> <laughs> to populate the planet of this Brigham Young descendant who has his own planet that he rules over as the new Elohim, and then he uses you and all his spirit wives to populate this planet with spirit children. They go down and, and do the whole thing over again. It's a lot of this eternal progression and eternal regression. They go back in eternity doing the same thing, and they go forward in eternity doing the same thing. That's that's the Mormon world right there. Boy, is that a bad deal for women? <laughs> and it sounds like some dumb young guy came up with that religion. <laughs> and he did. And he did. You know, externally, it can work a little bit. The thing is, there's always this really seamy underbelly. Yeah. In, in Utah, the True. instance of incest and all that stuff is really rampant. And it is. Like the, it's so funny in America. We look at the Muslims as very moral, but like if you're over there, they are the worst people in the whole world. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I, I really mean that. There aren't good Muslims. You know, you know when, they, when, they raided, when they raided Osama bin Laden's lair, you know how much porn they found on those Oh yeah, it's filled. It's with evil. Porn. It's evil stuff. They're hypocrites. Because you can't, you can't keep it under your thumb. You know, you try to be moral, but right. you just can't. You can't so, do it. And so, I, <laughs> so I used to look at Galatians 5 and see in a letter that's written to these moralists, these Judaizers, and you go into walk by the Spirit, and then it says, you know, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, the rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I used to think as a young Christian, why that list in a real moral, you know, church? Oh, because moralism can't reform the heart, and the heart still goes after that stuff. You remove the restraint, and that's where the heart goes. I was just looking back, and this is just as an aside, I was just looking back at Pamela. Do you like the idea of being eternally pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> eternally. <laughs> you, you were due, what would you do today? Huh? It's in three weeks? Yeah. Oh, man. I think they got that wrong. <laughs> Hold oh, hang in there. <laughs> Did someone say tread lightly? Yeah. <laughs> you know me. Oh uh, yeah, Scott. So uh, just, it, it doesn't work because it's it's all self-motivated. Yeah. Whenever it's all self-motivated, yeah. it doesn't line up with, with what God says in His Word. Yeah. And it just falls apart every time. Does disintegrates. It yeah. Doesn't line up with his word. So anything that doesn't line up with God's word is just it's going to fall apart. Because we know that. Okay? Yeah, Wes? Yeah, just to clarify a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the idea of, of obedience to rules is has an attraction to it, but when we even think about like the, the Mormon part or the Islam part, if we put all that aside and we think just simply about our lawmakers today and what their motivation truly is when those laws are established and mm -hmm. things, things are being set for, for rules to be followed in the world and society, in the end, while it may be, it may seem like it's sort of a, it may seem like um, 
the it's the, the right answer to to follow those rules. I mean, I think about laws that are set that are just horrible, and um, but the motivation behind them is what what you miss the hard part of that. And for 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 criminal law, I guess in that sense, is it's sort of a slippery slope that's so gradual that people don't notice how things get really twisted toward man's view and ha and what people that moral or that that idea how because it's so subtle. It's, it's slow moving, and, and you look back and you go, why did we, we're all okay with this now. Why are we all okay with this? Yeah, there was a um, senator, he's a New York senator, mm -hmm. I'm trying to, Patrick Moynihan, right. who, who wrote an article, it's a brilliant article, Not, I don't believe he's a Christian, I think he might have been a Catholic, right. but he, he, it was an article called Defining Deviancy Down. Fantastic article because he is talking about how, you know, the more people in a society encroach up over the over the law and commit transgression, the the more it taxes our law enforcement and our jails and all of our resources. And so instead of actually doing anything, because you can't really do anything to change the heart, so all you have to do then is change the law. Once it's no longer illegal. Oh, then no, no enforcement problems anymore. So that's, yeah, marijuana is a case in point. We're seeing that same thing. But there is always a cost to defining deviancy down because the more you permit deviancy, the more you remove restraint, the more the heart goes after even worse things in our, our society. Eventually, just every, the wheels come off, everything comes apart. And that's what we're watching, you know, it's a based mind. Okay? So guys, we're, we're past 7.30. I just wanted to say very quickly that how do we evangelize the evangelicals? How do we evangelize these people? Um, I'm just going to, I, we got to come back to this um, because this is, I want to leave you with this. It's going to be another month or so before we come back to some of this. And we do, we still have some more isms to go, so we'll, we'll do this again. But I just wanted to say that you want to, how do we, how do you evangelize these people? These are the kinds of people that we come up to and we see them, they use our same language, they claim to be Christians, but we do have questions, right? So number one, look for signs that a professor of Christ may not be a possessor of Christ, okay? Look for signs of that. You'll know them by their fruits. Number two, ask diagnostic questions to start a conversation. Like, what church do you attend? Um, hey, what's your pastor preaching? You know, just things like that. Just ask, ask some questions to start a conversation. Ask, um, the, if you start to see, yeah, this person's pastor isn't, he's actually just a cheerleader or moral coach or whatever, just a buddy. Um, ask them permission-oriented questions, like, hey, can I ask you a few questions that challenge your thinking a bit? And ask that kind of, that's not, offend, not offensive. Um, can I ask a, you know, a couple questions? Hey, um, or, or what about this one? If you were wrong about your profession of faith, if you were wrong about your, Christ, you know, your Christian profession, would you want to know about that? Just ask some questions like that. Permission, getting permission. And then if they give you permission, if they don't give you permission, well, then you know. <laughs> if they give you permission, um, ask deeper questions and look for evidence of regeneration. What do you love the most? What do you like the most? What do you want the most? Hey, do you want to go to heaven? Really? Why? What's in heaven that you want? What are you after? What do you hate the most? Hey, what causes you the most trepidation and fear? You know a Christian's answer? Most of the time, I don't ever want to let Christ down. I don't ever want to blow, I don't ever want to blow it to bring reproach to his name. They, Christians answer that way. Non-Christians answer, 
Yeah, I just, I don't want my wife to leave me, or I don't want my family to fall apart, or something like that. So ask deeper questions, look for evidence of regeneration, and then after that, help that person that, to see their deficiencies, and that those deficiencies and their, their, the gap between their possession and their profession are gravely serious. Now we're talking like eternal gravity, serious. And then teach them how to repent. Teach them how to repent. Walk them through repentance. Walk them through, and this is probably going to repent, be repentance unto true knowledge. Okay? So all of that is going to take a mighty work of the Holy Spirit. Regenerating grace, miraculous grace. That's way too brief, but I just didn't want to leave you hanging from that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight. We, we pray that um, you would use some of the things we've covered from your word in Romans 6 and Galatians uh, to give us discernment as we talk with people, to look for uh, signs in, you know, in a person, individual, churches, whatever, that we see signs of moralism or antinomianism. And we have um, a discernment about that and a love and a care for the person we're talking to, to to ask some ask some harder questions and have a conversation with them. And I pray, Father, that you would help us even through this exercise to watch for signs of these errors in our own church, in our own lives, in our own hearts. Because all of this comes from the habits of, of a sinful heart. And I just ask that you would protect us and help us to not fall off into either ditch but that we would walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, that we would grow in holiness, and uh, that you would help us. We, um, we love you. We thank you so much for this gospel that saved us. Uh, now please sanctify us according to your will, and help us to be faithful in sharing the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.